This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 2, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I know it's been a while since we had an episode available, but I've uh, been doing some some serious research into this current topic. Today's topic will be a look at the current crisis in Yemen regarding the Houthis and the Saudi Arabia bombings and all this other stuff you guys are hearing about. So you do know, of course, that Saudi Arabia is leading a coalition that is bombing Yemen, uh, air, launching airstrikes into Yemen. Um, ostensibly to bomb the Houthis. And you may be wondering, well, who are the Houthis? Well, that's what this episode is about, inshallah. This episode will cover the events in Yemen in uh, as best as I can, inshallah, up until the end of 2014. So you're going to see exactly the rise of the, of the Houthis and who exactly they are and why. We won't quite get into what the bombings yet because the bombings happened after 2014. But you'll get caught up on a lot of events and you'll probably learn more about Yemen than Yemen than you ever expected to learn, inshallah. But anyway, so show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Yemen, Y-E-M-E-N. And if you are so inclined, and I hope you are, please support the Islamic History Podcast with a Patreon donation. These things aren't easy to do, brothers and sisters. So if you can support it, go to patreon.com slash Islamic History. And with that, let's get into Season 4, Episode 2, Yemen and the Houthis. On Saturday, September 20th, 2014, the White House was evacuated when a man scaled the fence and tried to enter the residence. President Barack Obama and his family were not at home at the time and were never in danger. Also on this date, Nicki Minaj's song, Anaconda, was number one on the billboards while the movie The Maze Runner opened to box office success. Internationally, Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba went public with a $60 per share IPO, garnering the company over $230 billion in market share and making founder Jack Ma the richest man in China. While all this was happening, Houthi militants began invading the Yemeni capital of Sana'a. Within two days, the Houthis controlled most of the city. They captured the Yemeni national television station and began broadcasting messages from their leader, Abdul Malik Badreddin al-Houthi. This was the beginning of the current Yemeni crisis now stretching into its fourth year. It has been called a Yemeni civil war, a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and a sectarian conflict between Sunni and Shia. To understand the crisis in Yemen, we must first look at its history, the major players, and the regional politics of the Middle East. It is a complicated story involving religious figures, global superpowers, and rapidly changing alliances. To understand this crisis, we must first understand the Houthis and their faith, the Zaydi branch of Shia Islam. And then, we must also understand the recent political shifts that have led to the current situation. 
Like many things in Islam, the story begins in Arabia over a thousand years ago. The Zaydi branch of Shia Islam is named after Zayd ibn Ali, the son of Zayd al-Abidin. Zayd al-Abidin was the son of Hussein ibn Ali, who was in turn the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali ibn Abi Talib was Prophet Muhammad's, peace be upon him, cousin and one of his closest companions. The Shi'a to Ali, or simply Shia, are a group of Muslims who believe a descendant of the Prophet's cousin Ali ibn Abi Talib should have been the Caliph. The Shi'as have developed into a distinct Islamic sect separate from the main body of Sunni Muslims. The Zaydis in turn split off from the Shias because they felt Zayd ibn Ali should have been the next Shia imam after Zayn al-Abidin. Though they are technically Shia, Zaydi religious practices are very close to Sunni Muslims and historically there have been few clashes between them. In fact, some Sunni scholars refer to the Zaydis as the fifth madhab or school of thought. Zaydism was brought to Yemen in the 9th century by a Zaydi scholar named Al-Hadi al-Haq Yahya al-Rasi. Yahya al-Rasi was born in Medina but later moved to Yemen to spread Zaydi Islam among the tribes living in its northern mountains. At first, Yahya al-Rasi was unsuccessful, but over time, his popularity and fame in the north grew to the point where he was acknowledged as the imam of the area. Yahya's teachings would become the foundation of most Zaydi religious doctrine. Yahya al-Rasi's descendants would become something like royalty in northern Yemen and eventually establish the Rasi dynasty. This family would control the affairs of North Yemen for centuries. The Modern Yemeni State By the 18th century, Yemen was a protectorate of the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottomans were very weak by this time and had difficulty governing the troublesome tribes of the northern mountains. When World War I ended, the Ottoman Empire was gone, the Caliphate was abolished, and Britain and France snatched up most of the empire's former territories. Great Britain gained control of Yemen, but they faced strong resistance from a Zaydi imam named Yahya Hamiduddin al-Mutawakkil. Al-Mutawakkil spent much of his life fighting the British and the newly formed Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Finally, in 1934, Britain recognized al-Mutawakkil's autonomy and he became the king of northern Yemen. The rest of Yemen remained under the control of various British-approved Arab leaders. In 1962, a civil war toppled the Mutawakkil family and North Yemen was reorganized as the Yemen Arab Republic. That same year, the British withdrew from South Yemen, granting it full independence. The power vacuum was filled by the Soviet Union. For the next 23 years, there were several conflicts in both Yemens. There were wars fought between the Yemen Arab Republic, supported by Saudi Arabia and the British, and South Yemen, supported by the Soviets. There were also many wars fought within South Yemen as different factions vied for control. Throughout all of this, there was always the hope that the two nations could one day join and form one united Yemen. And in 1990, that hope was finally realized. With the Soviet Union collapsing and the discovery of oil in both North and South Yemen, both nations felt they were stronger together. 
Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president of the Yemen Arab Republic in the north, became the first president of a unified republic of Yemen. Ali Abdullah Saleh was a Zaidi from a village just south of Sana'a. He was a smooth, polished politician who knew how to play different groups against each other. His speeches were delivered with passion and authority and carefully chosen words. In 1991, the United States, with the help of Saudi Arabia, formed a global coalition to remove Iraqi forces from Kuwait. President Ali Abdullah Saleh refused to support this coalition, earning the ire of both the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia responded by cutting diplomatic ties with Yemen and expelling thousands of Yemeni workers. Saudi Arabia was Yemen's main trading partner, and with so many men out of work, discontent began to rise in Yemen. In 1992, a young Zaidi man named Hussein Badreddin started a social group called Ansarullah. Ansarullah promoted Zaidi religious education and unity, focusing on things like physical fitness and good character. With Saudi sanctions wreaking havoc and little work to be found, Ansarullah attracted many young Yemenis. In 1994, war broke out again in Yemen as Saudi-supported communists in the south tried to form their own government. Yemen was full of veterans from the Soviet-Afghan war who were eager to fight communists again. President Ali Abdullah Saleh unleashed them on the south and the rebels were crushed. The Minister of Defense, Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, played a key role in President Saleh's victory over the communists. As a reward, Saleh promoted him to vice president. Together, they would govern Yemen for the next 18 years. Demographics and Economy The population of Yemen is 40% Zaidi Muslim, with the rest mostly Sunni. There are small pockets of other Shia branches, including Ismailis and Twelvers. There are less than 20,000 Christians in Yemen and barely a hundred Jews. Despite being a minority, Zaidis have always played a significant role in Yemeni politics. Historically, there has been little internal strife between Zunis and Saidis in Yemen. This may be due to the fact that their religious law is very similar and softens the divide that otherwise separates Sunnis and Shias. Most Zaidis live in what is considered northern Yemen in Sa'ada province just south of Saudi Arabia. Most of what is considered southern Yemen is bare, uninhabited desert. As such, most of Yemen's wealth is generated in the north as well. The main economic engine in the south is the port city of Aden. The capital, Sana'a, is one of the oldest cities in the world and has always been the seat of Yemen's power structure. Even during the era of the Islamic Caliphate, the governor ruled from Sana'a. But Yemen's demographic complexities are not limited to north and south or Sunni and Zaidi. There is also an educated secular populace situated mostly in the three largest cities of Sana'a, Aden, and Ta'iz. There is a strong socialist party in the south, a holdover from the days when South Yemen was aligned with the Soviet Union. There is also a religious political group called Al-Islah, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Even though the Muslim Brotherhood is banned within Saudi Arabia, the kingdom has supported Al-Islah on various occasions. And interwoven among all of this are innumerable tribal loyalties and alliances. 
Unlike their wealthy northern neighbor, Yemen is a very poor country. It is one of the poorest countries in the world and the poorest nation on the Arabian Peninsula. Most of its income comes from oil, which Yemen does not have much of. This has increased Yemen's reliance on Saudi Arabia for protection and foreign aid. That aid dried up in 1991 when President Saleh refused to support the first Gulf War. However, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, Yemen became a partner in the war on terrorism. The United States gave Yemen billions of dollars in military and financial aid and encouraged Saudi Arabia to re-establish diplomatic relations. The War on Terrorism In October 2000, two men on a rubber raft filled with explosives blew a hole into the side of the USS Cole, an American naval destroyer, killing 17 soldiers. The ship had stopped to refuel at the port of Aden in the south. The United States launched an investigation and determined Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attack. The U.S. did not respond militarily and instead tried working with the Yemeni government to apprehend those responsible. When the war on terror began the following year after the 9-11 attacks, President Saleh made sure Yemen supported the U.S. this time. With funding and support from the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, President Saleh nearly wiped out the Yemeni branch of Al-Qaeda within a year. Meanwhile, the FBI had become interested in an American imam of Yemeni descent by the name of Anwar al-Awlaqi. His lectures about early Islamic history and stories from the Qur'an appealed to young Muslims living in the West. More troubling was his implicit support of suicide attacks. As the pressure from the FBI increased, Anwar al-Awlaqi left the United States and moved first to the UK and then relocated to eastern Yemen. Yemen's involvement in the war on terrorism was not popular with most Yemenis. This discontent increased when President Saleh supported the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. As a result, Hussein Badruddin's Ansarullah movement became more politically active. Ansarullah not only disapproved of Yemen's involvement in the war, they also resented Saudi Arabia's constant meddling and felt the government was neglecting the Zaydi population. Hussein Badruddin and Ansarullah began organizing protests against the war in Iraq. They shouted the words that remain their slogan even to this day. Allahu Akbar, al-Mawtu lil-Imrika, al-Mawtu lil-Israel, al-Nasru lil-Islam. God is great, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews, victory is for Islam. President Saleh cracked down in early 2004 and ordered the arrest of various members of Ansarullah. There were even accusations the government targeted members for assassination. Ansarullah responded by going underground and fighting back. But these early clashes were minor and sporadic. And Saleh had little training and equipment, and President Saleh was more focused on fighting the remnants of Al-Qaeda in the barren deserts of eastern Yemen. In September 2004, the leader of Ansarullah, Hussein Badruddin, was killed in a firefight with the Yemeni military. His brother, Abdul Malik Badruddin, took over leadership of the organization and vowed to continue the fight against the government. 
Out of love for their fallen leader, the members of Ansarullah began calling themselves by his family name, Al-Huthuniyyah, the Houthis. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula By early 2006, President Saleh was prepared to claim victory. Most of the members of Al-Qaeda in Yemen had been killed or imprisoned. Hussein Bajraddin, the founder of the Ansarullah movement, was dead, and their insurgency was sputtering out. President Saleh had almost complete control of every faculty of government and was poised to win re-election later that year. Then, in February 2006, 23 prisoners escaped from the Political Security Central Prison in Sana'a by digging an underground tunnel to a nearby mosque. Many of the escapees were responsible for the attack against the USS Cole. They eventually found their way back to the east, re-energizing the Yemeni branch of Al-Qaeda. Two years later, Saudi Arabia's crackdown on their branch of Al-Qaeda led to some unintended results. Back in 2003, the Saudi branch of Al-Qaeda launched a series of attacks in Saudi Arabia killing and injuring hundreds of people, mostly Muslims. The Saudi government responded with a brutal crackdown and by 2008, the surviving remnants were forced to flee south into Yemen. In 2009, the Saudi and Yemeni branches of Al-Qaeda merged to form a new group, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or ACAP for short. ACAP unleashed a series of deadly attacks. In January 2009, ACAP attempted to assassinate Saudi Prince Mohammed ibn Nayef. In March 2009, they killed 16 South Korean tourists in eastern Yemen. In October 2009, a Nigerian man named Omar Farouk Abdul Mutallab dropped out of school in Sana'a to join ACAP in the east. Two months later, he attempted to blow up an airliner traveling to Detroit with explosives sewn into his underwear. The explosive did not go off and the underwear bomber, as he became known, was arrested and sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. Though he never met him, the underwear bomber admitted to being influenced by Anwar al-Awlaki's lectures. Anwar al-Awlaki was living with his tribe in eastern Yemen, teaching classes, giving lectures, and occasionally posting to his blog. In November 2009, Major Nidal Hassan, a U.S. Army psychiatrist, opened fire on his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood, Texas. He killed 13 people and injured 32 others before being shot by a local police officer. During the investigation, Nidal Hassan also admitted to being influenced by Anwar al-Awlaki and corresponding with him via email. In October 2010, American and Saudi authorities uncovered an ACAP plot to bomb cargo planes using bombs hidden inside printer cartridges. The U.S. ambassador to Yemen accused Anwar al-Awlaki of planning the attack. While most American Muslims tried their best to prove these attacks were isolated incidents, Anwar al-Awlaki praised them on his blog. The United States had had enough. President Obama added Anwar al-Awlaki's name to the CIA kill list. The U.S. Treasury designated him a global terrorist. The U.N. Security Council declared him an al-Qaeda affiliate. Overnight, Anwar al-Awlaki went from being a fringe Islamic speaker to one of the most wanted men in the world. He went into hiding with both Yemeni and American intelligence networks looking for him. 
The rise of ACAP forced President Ali Abdullah Saleh's hand. Even though he was close to stamping out the Houthi insurgency in the north, ACAP was the bigger threat, and he could not fight them both at the same time. So, he agreed to a ceasefire with the Houthis, granting them a measure of autonomy in their stronghold, the northern province of Sa'ada. Then President Saleh declared war on ACAP and turned all of his attention to finishing them for good. The Arab Spring President Saleh's war on ACAP was cut short by the Arab Spring. Beginning in late 2010, the Arab Spring was a wave of social upheavals and protests that swept across the Middle East. This movement saw thousands of young Arabs take to the streets demanding more open and democratic governments. The Arab Spring began in Tunisia but quickly spread to Egypt, Syria, and Libya. Each of these countries had autocrats who had ruled for decades with little opposition. It was not long before the Arab Spring came to Yemen. President Ali Abdullah Saleh had ruled Yemen since its unification in 1990. Before that, he was president of the Yemen Arab Republic since 1978. 34 years in power had given him almost complete control over every aspect of Yemeni society. In January 2011, 16,000 Yemenis took to the streets of Sana'a demanding immediate reforms and for President Saleh to step down from office. President Saleh promised reforms and that he would step down when his term ended in 2013. But that was not enough for the Arab Spring protesters. The demonstrations intensified, shutting down the city and crippling the fragile Yemeni economy. President Saleh made things worse by wavering back and forth. The United Nations, the United States, and other Arab countries pressured him to step down. Several times he agreed to resign within a matter of months, only to change his mind a few days later. He finally made up his mind in June 2011 when a bomb ripped through a mosque where he was praying. The blast killed several worshippers and members of his entourage. President Saleh himself suffered burns over 40% of his body. While President Saleh was recovering from the attack, Vice President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi managed the affairs of the country. During this hospital stay, Ali Abdullah Saleh agreed to resign for good. In February 2012, Vice President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi won the election by a landslide and became the second president of Yemen. The Houthi Insurgency President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi was a short, pudgy man with a few wisps of gray hair encircling his bald head. His speeches were dull and emotionless, made worse because he read them verbatim from loose-leaf sheets of paper while his glasses balanced on the end of his nose. Most of the nation did not take him seriously. ACAP was still launching attacks which grew ever more sophisticated and deadly and the U.S. was responding with drone strikes, and while Al-Awlaki had been killed by an American drone just a few months earlier. The Houthis took full advantage of the Arab Spring. While everyone was focused on the protests in Sana'a, the Houthis established connections with Iran and other Shia militant groups. They improved their weaponry and finances and consolidated their power in northern Yemen. They were no longer the ragtag bunch that President Saleh almost crushed in the early 2000s. After years of fighting the army, 
ACAP, and enemy tribes in the north, the Houthis were now a disciplined fighting force. The Houthis refused to acknowledge President Hadi, stating the election had been rigged and that they were not part of the process. Under this pretext, the Houthis began expanding their reach beyond the province of Sa'ada. If President Hadi wanted to fight the Houthis, he was not able to. Pressure from the United States, plus the realities of war, forced him to concentrate on ACAP in the east. This diverted resources from the north while the Houthis continued to increase their territory. Fighting the Houthis would have been a difficult prospect in any event. President Hadi was a Sunni Muslim, but most of his generals were Zaydis and still loyal to former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. Furthermore, several parts of the military sympathized with the Houthis. When the Houthis encountered a Yemeni army base, more often than not, the base would surrender rather than fight back. Capturing these bases allowed the Houthis to acquire advanced weaponry. The Houthis could march into battle with tanks, armored personnel carriers, howitzers, anti-aircraft weapons, and even American-made Humvees. The Houthis continued to spread their control throughout the first two years of President Hadi's term. They seemed intent on conquering all of North Yemen and Hadi was powerless to stop them. In November 2013, the Houthis proved just how deadly they could be. The Siege of Damaj Mumtaz Darul Hadith was a Sunni educational institute in the village of Damaj in North Yemen. Darul Hadith offered Islamic studies according to the Salafi Minhaj. The Salafi Minhaj, or methodology, is a strictly orthodox understanding of Islam. Salafis, those who follow this methodology, view other expressions of Islam as unorthodox at best or heretical at worst. The word Salafi means predecessor and it refers to the first three generations of Muslims as Salafi Salihun or the righteous predecessors. Salafis believe the righteous predecessors were the best of all Muslims. Non-Salafis often view them as strict, inflexible, and intolerable of others, even other Sunni Muslims. The modern Salafi movement was founded by Muhammad Abdul Wahhab, the religious advisor of Ibn Saud, the founder of the Saudi royal family. Opponents of the Salafis often call them Wahhabis after Abdul Wahhab. Sheikh Mukbil ibn Hadi al-Wadi was a Yemeni man from Damaj in northern Yemen. He was born into a Zaydi family, but studied Islam at the University of Medina in Saudi Arabia. By the time he graduated, Sheikh Mukbil had converted to Sunni Islam and was a staunch Salafi. He returned to his home country of Yemen and established Darul Hadith in the late 1980s. Throughout the 1990s, as the Salafi Minhaj spread outside Arabia, Darul Hadith became a popular destination for young Salafi students. Darul Hadith did not give out certificates or degrees. Students who attended there did not live in fancy dormitories nor attend lavish graduation ceremonies. Students attending Darul Hadith were choosing a difficult life. They were giving up the comforts of home to study Islam in one of the harshest environments on the planet. As Darul Hadith grew, so did the community around it. Despite the rough lifestyle, the school attracted thousands of students from all over the world. Young men from North America, Europe, Africa, and Asia came to Damaj to live an authentic Salafi life, and they often brought their wives and children with them. 
By the early 2000s, Damaj had become a purely Salafi village in the middle of Zaydi Shia territory. The men wore long thobes and full beards with their izar wraps well above their ankles. The women wore all black, complete with black gloves and the traditional niqab veil. Even though Salafis consider the Shias to be heretics, there was little conflict between the residents of Damaj and their Zaydi neighbors. But all of this changed when the Houthis began to exert their power. While the world was focused on the Arab Spring protests in Sana'a, no one paid attention to the Houthis as they strengthened their hold in northern Yemen. In October 2011, the Houthis accused Darul Hadith of being a front for ACAP and of smuggling in weapons and fighters. They cut off all roads to Damaj and laid siege to the town for nearly two months. Houthi snipers and artillery holed up in the surrounding mountains held the city hostage. Finally, in December 2011, the local tribes negotiated a truce with the Houthis. The Houthis withdrew and there was relative peace in Damaj for two years. Then, in October 2013, while President Hadi was focused on fighting ACAP and communists in the southern Yemen, the Houthis again accused Darul Hadith of bringing in fighters and weapons. Darul Hadith insisted they were only students, but the Houthis did not believe them. Once again, Damaj was under siege, only this time the Houthis were stronger and the government was weaker. As bad as the siege of 2011 was, this one was worse. Houthi artillery bombarded Damaj with heavy shelling. Venturing outside became a gamble with death as Houthi snipers targeted men, women, and children. Even the local mosques were not safe as the Houthis deliberately targeted congregants during Friday prayers. Within the first month of the siege, 30 people had been killed in Damaj with another 100 injured. The local governor, a Houthi sympathizer, publicly denied there was any siege and that the Houthis were not involved. That same day, an old man and a six-year-old boy were killed by snipers. A presidential committee came from the capital to inspect the situation. The shelling stopped while the committee was in Damaj, but as soon as they left, resumed with even more intensity. The siege dragged on into November 2013 with no end in sight. With the roads into and out of the city blocked off, the people of Damaj suffered from a lack of food and medicine. Pregnant women went into labor with no trained medical staff. The young, sick, and the elderly were easy victims. The Red Cross tried negotiating with the Houthis to gain access, but were always denied. When a second presidential committee came to visit, the Houthis did not even bother to stop shelling. They just pointed their guns to a different part of the village. Another month went by and nothing changed. The local tribes tried to fight the Houthis, but were always outgunned. The Houthis even attacked a local tribal council that was trying to find a peaceful solution. Throughout all of this, men, women, and children were killed by snipers, artillery fire, sickness, and crumbling debris. Finally, in early January 2014, after 90 days under siege, the Houthis allowed the Red Cross to evacuate 35 injured students. This was the first sign that a ceasefire was in the works. On January 11th, the government struck an agreement with the Houthis to relocate all of the Salafis from Damaj. Sheikh Yahya al-Hajuri, the dean of Dar al-Hadith, agreed to the terms. The Salafis were given four days to leave and they could only take what they could carry with them. 
The government and local tribes provided hundreds of trucks and buses to transport the nearly 10,000 residents of Damaj. Throughout the siege, over 800 people were killed. The Fall of Sana'a The Salafis of Damaj were not the only people evacuated from the north. The government tried to convince all Sunnis to leave the province of Sa'ada, the primary Houthi stronghold. While the government's intention was to protect the Sunnis of North Yemen, by doing so, they handed control of the north over to the Houthis. But the Houthis were still not satisfied. They continued to press their advantage, adding to their territory and getting closer and closer to the capital. President Hadi had no way to counter them. Most of his military commanders were Zaidi and loyal to former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. Ali Abdullah Saleh was still involved in politics and was now conspiring with the Houthis to overthrow President Hadi. It seemed the former enemies had found a common cause. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was still a major threat as they continued launching attacks throughout Yemen. A Russian military instructor was gunned down by ACAP in November 2013. 52 people were killed in an ACAP attack on a hospital in December 2013. In January 2014, ACAP killed an Iranian diplomat in Sana'a. In April 2014, ACAP attacked a military base in Aden. Later that month, they killed five Yemeni soldiers in an attack in Hajramaut. A month later, four soldiers were killed when ACAP attacked the presidential palace in Sana'a. President Hadi worked with the U.S. government to combat ACAP, but that had unintended consequences. American drones targeting ACAP leaders often killed innocent Yemenis in the process. One drone strike in May 2014 killed 12 people at a wedding party while targeting a mid-level ACAP operative. These incidents often drove people to join ACAP or at the very least turned them against President Hadi. So when the Houthis began to press on the outskirts of Sana'a in July 2014, there was little President Hadi could do. The Houthis did not attack Sana'a directly. That would have been too bold and would have little legitimacy with the Yemeni people. Instead, they used the same tactics as the Arab Spring protesters to try to topple President Hadi's government. In August 2014, strapped for cash and struggling in his war against ACAP, President Hadi announced an end to government fuel subsidies. This doubled the price of gas in Yemen and gave the Houthis the excuse they needed. The Houthis called for massive demonstrations in the capital, protesting against the price hikes and government corruption. Thousands of Houthis and their supporters flooded the city, crippling the government and shutting down the capital. These protests continued for weeks and grew in size and intensity. The UN denounced the Houthi protests and the government's supporters held counter-protests. This only led to the Houthi leader, Abdul Malik Badruddin, to call for even larger protests. Abdul Malik Badruddin al-Houthi was the brother of Hussein Badruddin al-Houthi, the founder of Ansarullah, the official name of the Houthis. Abdul Malik Badruddin had taken over when his brother was killed fighting the government several years earlier. Abdul Malik Badruddin was only 34 years old, very young compared to President Hadi, who was 69, and former President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was 
Abdul Malik did not wear suits and ties like other Yemeni politicians. Instead, he wore a simple blazer over a long thobe, a kafaya draped across his shoulders, and an ornately carved jambia dagger tucked into his waistband. The demonstrations and counter-demonstrations continued throughout August and into September 2014. President Hadi offered to scale back the price hikes and even sacked his cabinet and formed a new government to appease the Houthis. None of it worked. The Houthis had the momentum and they were not backing down. They staged sit-ins at government buildings. They blocked roads to the airport. They aired long speeches from Abdul Malik Badruddin online and on the local news. In his speeches, Abdul Malik Badruddin promised the Houthis did not want to take over the government. He insisted the Houthis only wanted to bring peace and justice to the Yemeni people. When the police tried to disperse the crowds with water cannons and tear gas, Abdul Malik accused the government of attacking peaceful protesters. By the middle of September, the peaceful protests were turning violent. Local Sunni tribes and members of al-Islah, the Yemeni branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, waged gun battles against the Houthis. The government launched airstrikes at Houthi positions outside of Sana'a. Government troops and Houthis clashed in the northeastern suburbs of Sana'a, resulting in 25 deaths. Sana'a was descending into chaos. The United Nations sent representatives to broker talks between the government and the Houthis, but they did no good. By September 18th, the UN envoy fled the country, stating the Houthis were strong enough to take the capital whenever they wanted. The next day, Houthi artillery began shelling the city. And on Saturday, September 20th, 2014, Houthi troops advanced into Sana'a. President Hadi never called in the military to counter the Houthis. Perhaps he did not fully understand the Houthi threat. Perhaps he did not want to move soldiers from the front lines against ACAP. Perhaps he did not trust his own generals. Whatever the reason, the Houthis met little resistance as they swarmed over the city. They captured the prime minister's building. They captured the military headquarters. They captured the television station and began broadcasting Abdul Malik Badruddin's daily speeches across the nation. By September 24th, the Houthis controlled almost all of Sana'a. Most government and military officials fled the capital. President Hadi was placed under house arrest as the Houthis surrounded the presidential palace. The Houthis also began targeting those members of al-Islah who still remained in Sana'a. On September 28th, Saudi Arabia got involved. The kingdom announced the insurgency would destabilize the region and declared the Houthis a terrorist organization. This opened the door to international intervention. ACAP now had a new enemy. They began attacking Houthi and government targets throughout Yemen. Daily bombings ripped through the capital, resulting in hundreds of Zaidi and Houthi deaths. Officially, Hadi was still president, though his power did not extend beyond the palace. President Hadi was a prisoner in his own home and surrounded by the Houthis. The Houthis were not ready to storm the palace, and Hadi was not able to fight back. But there was no doubt, the Houthis were in control. 2014 ended with nearly 7,000 deaths in Yemen, including 1,200 civilians. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you enjoyed that. I found it um, educational and beneficial. 
One of the biggest misconceptions I had about this whole conflict in Yemen is that I actually thought the Houthis were an ethnic group. I thought they were like a, you know, a tribe in Yemen or maybe a branch of Shia Islam or something. I didn't know what they really were, but um, as you can see, we all learned the Houthis are a militant group. They're a political party. You know, they're militants, politicians, whatever they are. They're not ethnic people. Even there are even some Sunnis who are part of the Houthis. So, who are members of who are Houthis basically? So, I hope you understand that now, and hopes hopefully it clarifies things for you. Now, like many others, I don't. I at the beginning, of course, uh, before I started doing all this research. I didn't really understand why Saudi Arabia was bombing another Muslim country. I'm not at all saying that Saudi Arabia's bombing is justified, but I hope that you can see it's not clear black and white. It's not just Saudi Arabia hates Shia, so they're bombing Yemen. That's what many people have. I've um, had discussions with so many people who think that Saudi Arabia is doing this because they're Shia. No, <laughs> the Houthis conquered, basically captured a government, their their rebel group who who overthrew the elected government of Yemen. So this was really mind boggling to me as I learned who the Houthis really were. And I hope you understand that also. Inshallah in the next episode we'll get into more of the details of, of Saudi Arabia's bombing campaign and how Saudi Arabia and this coalition got into it. Right now at the end of this story we didn't quite into that we didn't quite get into it just yet, but inshallah we will soon. Now just so you understand how I did my research for this episode. No, I did not use Wikipedia. Well, I mean, I use Wikipedia for a few things, but no, most of my research for this episode came from news websites, archives and news websites like Al Jazeera, uh, CNN, uh, BBC, Al Arabiya. That's where most of my research came from. I've read, I don't know how many articles, hundreds, probably, maybe not thousands, but definitely hundreds of news articles going all the way back to roughly 2011, 2010, when I could get a lot of this information and learning about the rise of the Houthis. So I want you to understand that, first of all, that this wasn't done through, you know, I, I did some serious research on that. Uh, as far as the siege of Damage, that information, I got that actually from two blogs from English-speaking students who were at Dar al-Hadith during the siege so that's as close as you can really get to first-hand accounts so i think that was pretty that was very eye-opening to to read the experiences of these two students while they were suffering while they're under this constant artillery bombardment from the houthis it was really amazing so i'll include links for that inshallah in the show notes in case you want to visit these two blogs and read what they had to say for yourself because they go into much more detail than i could so season four i kind of called this episode and the last one about the um the Icelander against aisha i kind of consider these both of these as part of season four officially um the story regarding the caliphate and uh, Ibn Zubair's fight against the Umayyads, I, I got kind of sidetracked, mostly because I was doing research on this. So I got kind of sidetracked with that. And also, that history is very complicated. It's the history with um, after um, Hussein's death and now Ibn Zubair starting to rise up. Uh, it's very, very complicated. There's a lot of fighting between a lot of different tribal factions. I'm trying to keep track of all these tribes. It's very difficult, boring, and confusing. So it may take me some time to get around back to that story. I'm going to still push out episodes to you, inshallah, hopefully more frequently than this one. But I'm going to start working on more 
modern topics, okay? Rather than the uh, Ibn Zubair's fight against the um, the Umayyads, which we'll come back to inshallah sometime in the future. But I'm going to start doing more topics like this, like the Houthis. I got a few others in mind. I don't, I don't want to give them out yet, just yet. But I got some modern topics I want to cover. So I'll hopefully start putting those out more frequently. And, and you, you know, hopefully, inshallah, you still enjoy them. Another reason why season four is kind of delayed is because I'm doing a, I'm working a lot of overtime at work. I have a regular nine to five job. So really, the only time I get to work um, on the podcast is on the weekends and after work. And after work, it really ain't happening because I'm too tired. But on the weekends, when I really get a lot of work done, it's been a because it's the holiday season. Um, there's been a lot of uh, I've had a little bit more free time because of Christmas, Thanksgiving and now New Year's. Matter of fact, I'm actually recording this on January first, two thousand eighteen. Really, the first day of um of the year. So I have a little bit a little bit of time right now. But starting tomorrow, I go back to work. This is uh, our busy season at work. Uh, we we um we I work for a company that makes accounting software. So the beginning of the year is a big time for accountants and companies and businesses in general. But the point of the matter is that uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be very busy for the next month or so. I'll still try to do what I can to get these episodes out to you, but please understand the difficulty in trying to get these things out. It's, it's just not easy all, uh, working overtime, even my regular work, and then only having a few days a week to work on these things. So, uh, as I mentioned, my research into the Houthis has gotten me interested in some more modern topics, modern Islamic history topics. So I think I might um, go into those more, inshallah, and you'll you'll see them soon, coming out very soon, inshallah. We still going, we're still going to finish the story in the Houthis. I got at least one more episode to catch you up from 2014. This episode ended in 2014, so we got to go from 2015, 16, and 17, and catch up on that. That'll be the next episode. My hope is, inshallah, maybe a week or so, I'll have that ready for you. Allah knows best, but we'll see. So um, the research for this, ex- ep- for this next episode on the Houthis is already done. I already got all the research. I got my notes. All I got to do is just put it all together, sit down and record it, and get it to you. So the, the time interval for the next episode shouldn't be that long. I'm hoping two weeks if everything goes okay. Maybe, you know, if I'm really, really blessed, maybe even one week, though, I think that's kind of, you know, wishful thinking there. But anyway, inshallah, it shouldn't be that long to get the next episode out to you. Please uh, visit the show notes page uh, for the Islamic History Podcast, which are at the show notes page, which is at IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Yemen. When you get there, you will be able to join the Facebook page for the Islamic History Podcast. I post lots of updates there uh, to keep you abreast of what I'm currently working on regarding this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. Many people have um, corresponded with me through Instagram. By all means, if you that's your weapon of choice, by all means, feel free to do so. Uh, people have also asked me about season one. Once again, season one is available if you become a Patreon subscriber. Uh, all it takes is $1 a month. Also on the show notes page, links to Um Hasna's blog. That's where I got the information regarding the um the uh, Siege of Damaj. There will also be a link to a documentary on the Houthis. Uh, it's on YouTube, but I'll include the link in the show notes page so you can, in case you want to get more information about it beyond what I got here. With that, brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed the show. Inshallah, next episode, next episode will be out very soon. And if you have any questions, comments, any suggestions that I of uh, 
different topics I can cover. I have my own ideas, but you may have something more interesting. By all means, let me know about them. Facebook, Instagram, email is, all, is, is okay. Uh, all those things are good. So inshallah, hope to hear from you guys soon. And inshallah, you will be hearing from me soon as well. And with that, until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The Houthis seized control of Yemen's capital, Sana'a, in September of 2014. Mobilizing thousands of fighters, the Houthis pushed south from their northern stronghold close to the Saudi border. Yemen's government was weak, its army fractured. The Houthis saw an opportunity. They took the capital in only four days. I arrived two weeks later. The Houthis are mostly Zaydi Muslims from the Shia branch of Islam. Their slogan is now seen everywhere. It's a political chant from the days of Ayatollah Khomeini and the Iranian Revolution. It reads, God is great. Death to America. Death to Israel. God curse the Jews. Victory to Islam. I'm staying with the family of my close friend, Radhiya, a human rights activist. Her father, Dr. Muhammad Al-Mutawakkil, is a prominent and independent local politician. I asked Radhiya to take me on a drive around Sana'a to show me how the city has changed since the Houthi takeover. The Houthis have set up checkpoints all over the city, but they have left the Yemeni government and its bureaucracy functioning. Their control is still tentative. Abdul Ilah is a member of the so-called Revolutionary Committee, which the Houthis have established to enforce their agenda on the government. They are a secretive movement. They won't even tell me how many of them are in the city. After weeks of negotiations, they finally let me follow them in action. This is an unannounced visit to the Ministry of Finance. The Houthis have put their own guards inside the ministries. 